Welcome to In Our Experience, a podcast exploring the many ways of living well with Nourish Yoga Training. I'm your host, Harriet, yoga teacher and founder of Nourish. Today, I'm joined by Theo Wildcroft. Theo is a teacher, writer and scholar. Her research considers the democratization of yoga post-lineage and the many different ways yoga communities are responding to concerns about safety and practice. She is at the forefront of the movement for trauma sensitivity, diversity, and inclusion. And of course, she's one of our wonderful faculty members. I had an absolute dream talking to Theo. She and I, it feels like are having a continuous conversation that happens over many mediums and times and spaces. But today, we talked about how much we love mustard, whether yoga is a religion, and the power of team building. I am thrilled to share this episode with you and would love to hear what you think. So do get in touch with us via the show notes. And here is my chat with Theo. Hi, Theo. Welcome to In Our Experience. Hi, Harriet. Thanks for joining me today. I'm so excited that you're here. It's really nice to be here. I'm really excited you're doing this. I know. It feels like it's been actually a long, a long time coming. Yeah, and I get I get invited on a few podcasts, so it's nice to do one with someone I know really well. Although I know that they tend to go a bit um, off on interesting tangents, so I think it'll be fun. Well, <laughs> this is this is a podcast of tangents. I think so 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 far so far when people have been like, "Oh, is it a yoga podcast?" I'm like, "Yeah, kinda." sometimes <laughs> um so yeah I'm, I'm I mean bring on bring on the tangents but we are going to start I'm going to start on point which is by asking you what's nourishing you this week so I ask this question to every guest and it can be silly it can be serious um I'm going to share mine with you first um to sort of to help you out I went for a silly one today which is that I recently bought some jam and I go through phases with jam. Sometimes I have jam every day and then I'll go like for months and not be interested in jam, not want to look at it, not want to taste it. And I'm, I was doing my food shopping this week and I saw the strawberry jam there on the shelf and I was like, it's time for some jam. Um, so I have been really enjoying having some jam back in my life on top of my porridge, <laughs> stirred into some yogurt, um, you know, because essentially I feel like it's grown up. It's like a sweet, like, you know. Mm. Um, so that's my that's my nourishing thing. It's been making me very happy, jam. Yum. I think it's probably, yeah, it's definitely a time for that warm, foody, nourishment-y thing. I think the weather's gone that way, hasn't it? I'm... I know I made um I made gnocchi for lunch. I mean, when I say I made gnocchi, like the gnocchi came from a packet, but I I kind of made things with it. And you know when you have that really pleasing moment where you go, I've got this slightly raggedy end of a squash, butternut squash here, and I've got that bit of rosemary from the weekend that's still left over, and I've got some butter and I've got some lemon juice in a bottle and oh my god and it all just comes together really pleasingly and uh, makes a really you've just got everything you need I'm and I think that particularly in the last couple of years like we've got both of us got really into making sure that you have the basics in to nourish you for food you know partly because you know what with the Brexit and all the other craziness people have been 
talk about kind of shortages and so on and so forth. And you know what? Just having, if you can afford it and you've got the space, then having a decent pantry of stuff in so that when you're tired and when you're just like, I don't want the thing I thought I wanted, I want this thing here. And I know it's going to nourish me and feel good because it's comfort food and it's the comfort food I have. So a lot of that at the moment. Mm. That is delicious on many levels. And yes, I agree that a good pantry is a thing that brings much joy. I'm the sort of person where if I don't have like two tins of chopped tomatoes in my pantry, I get anxious about it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, but I don't have enough tomatoes to make, I don't know, three batches of of pasta sauce. Um, Yeah, it's... I mean, it's all about like being resourced and being yeah. ready. Yeah, it is. Okay. Um, there are things that are definitely on the one in hand list. Like if you run out of them, you need to have one spare just in case. And some of that is really kind of simple stuff like, I don't know, milk or, you know, like oat milk in our house because we get through so much. In fact, we get through so many oats, which is almost entirely me and the dog because um, <laughs> we both have oats every day. So it's like we get through a stupid amount of oats. We've always got spare oats in the house. Um, but then it's the kind of slightly more decadent, like a really nice salad dressing that you don't have to make for yourself. <laughs> always making sure you've got one of those in. And the really fun moment this week, which is really slightly, was kind of felt really decadent, but isn't at all, is uh, we watched Bake Off last night. Um, and they their technical challenge was essentially making Twixes, although they couldn't call them Twixes, of course, because it's like, you know, that would be advertising or whatever. So they're like caramel biscuit bars, and they're all kind of mugging madly at the camera saying caramel biscuit bars. And of course, as, as any regular Bake Off watcher knows, you always get to that point and you're like, oh, why do I not have the thing in the house? I want, and, and usually that's like, I don't know, creme patissiere filled, cronuts or something like you would never be able to get but this was like twixes and phil was like we have twixes in the cellar in the pantry as emergency chocolate and it was like just such a lovely moment to have a twix each so yeah at the moment because i'm quite i'm into the last delighting thing that you had so at the moment the thing that i'm most delighted about my about my pantry is the fact that we had twixes on tap last night Next week, it will be something else, obviously. That's a wonderful, that's a wonderful thing. I also love the idea of having a really nice salad dressing. I hadn't thought of that before, but I might, I might steal that from you. I do have three different types of mustard, but. Of course. I mean, (laughs) always. Always. (laughs) But But which ones? Um, Dijon, obviously. Uh Uh-huh. Whole grain. And then mm. like a like a hot English mustard. Oh, and I've got wasabi. Is that four? I mean, wasabi is sort of like a mustard. Kind of. Yeah. 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 Now, we always have English. Interestingly, Dijon, I don't, I find whenever I reach for Dijon, I'll as easily reach for whole grain. So we've got English. Controversial. Whole grain. Okay. I know. I know. Um, and, a, and a squeezy American one for, for silliness. There you go. I yeah. find... So my hot tip is using whole grain and Dijon together. Oh, so if you're going to reach for Dijon and you're like, no, I want the whole grain, like use like one of my great sayings use in life, pequeno los dos, like oh, why not both? <laughs> <laughs> why not both? I might try that. Maybe I need to have Dijon in the house and then I can have even more mustard in my life. 
I mean, Phil knows at the end that if you're not careful, my pantry is generally full of like Tabasco, hot mustards, horseradishes, chili germs. There's absolutely nothing pitter about this at all, you know. And sometimes <laughs> he will say to me, like, not everything has to be hot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I am, I am somebody that puts like chili or hot sauce or mustard on mm. everything. Mm. Nearly. Like, it depends. Depends. Like, I'm not going to put it on mm. a steak. <laughs> oh, no, mustard I would have on a steak. What am I talking about? Mustard you'd have on a steak, too. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Wow. I'm really sceptical of people that don't like mustard. Specifically. Yeah, yeah. Like, do you not have taste buds? Do they not like there mustard? There is that thing as well, isn't it? Like, there's that whole thing about um, um, white people and not liking spicy things that I always feel like I on the one hand I completely understand and appreciate that sentiment and that joke at the same time as well as not identifying it I do not with identify it in any way shape or form no I'm like how can I put more chili I will buy things that are like I, I made last night I made like a coconut red curry thing so the curry paste already has chili in it and I'm like no no too, no, like not, not enough not enough <laughs> so I'm like piling more chilies and like three like two different types of ginger and I'm anyway delicious delicious well there we go our first tangent it's a long <laughs> long tangent about <Yeah>. mustard <laughs> but my but my subscribers are really glad that they listen to my podcast right now um <laughs> Well, let's um, let's let's circle back to you because you're the guest here. You're the star of the show, not the mustard. Um, okay. So maybe tell me a little bit about you. And this is this is, I think, always a more interesting question than asking somebody what they do. How would you describe like what you do rather than like what your job is? Mm. <laughs> yeah, because we the, we don't we don't have all day for the job a bit. <laughs> like, which job? Which job? <laughs> what day? Which five of your so jobs? It is. <laughs> yeah, but it is true that I do. I I do have to spend kind of regular amounts of time thinking about what it is that connects what I do. I'm in that sense of like, there's a difference between the kind of job titles or the things you get paid for, and then what's the thing that brings all those things together? What like what's your Oh, I would hate that kind of what's your, I actually don't do the kind of what's your purpose thing, but like what's driving you, what's driving you right now and what's your, what's your guiding star. Um, and for me, I think there's a couple I'm one of them is very much about relationship. So it's, you know, we talked before about, um, I do believe that the heart of all teaching and particularly teaching of yoga, but all teaching is actually around the relationship of consent and how you, how you navigate consent and uh, as a practice in and of itself, like how do we come together in all these different ways? How do we form a relationship that is honorable with all sorts of other beings, um, whatever those, whoever those beings might be, uh, whatever their kind of shape and species. Um, so I think that's, that's a big part of what, um, what kind of I see as my kind of role in the world. I think what I'm what I'm good at, like my skill set, tends to revolve around 
teaching in the sense of kind of communication like how do you i'm always interested in how how do you explain things to people who don't share the same reference points as you so whether that's as an academic trying to explain things to people who are non-specialists or whether you're trying to explain complex subjects to someone who you know you know isn't necessarily intellectually capable of understanding certain things like, like there's always a way to explain there's always a way to 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 make things understandable for people um and it is in the heart of that relationship and that making of relationship between people that's part of what we're doing is trying to figure out um the ways in which we're different and the ways in which we're similar and and, and how we navigate the world and we can like like that ongoing conversation between human beings in particular is is how we do that for me. So I think that's why a lot of what I do is teach and write and um and 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 things like that. But I think it's interesting how often I come back to being the bridge between different communities or between different discourses or between different languages. Like like this is how this is what's important. I'm and, and sometimes in two directions. Like my research was about the yoga community, but it wasn't just about um you know, it's about explaining that yoga community to an academic community and then understanding what the academic community's response is to that and then explaining that back to the yoga community that I'm working with. You know, so, so it, 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 is, it isn't a one-way street by any means. Um, and I think finally as a researcher, like what, what fascinates me most is actually the ways in which we make meaning in all of these things, all of the ways in which we make meaning in the world um, in weird and wonderful ways. Because that's a lot of what we do as human beings is find patterns, figure out patterns, make meaning, make stories, kind of impose stories on the world for good or for, for evil. Um, so I think that's, you know, a big part of who we are as human beings. There's so much juicy stuff in there that I want to like, I, I want to dive into. And I really, I think you're right. Like my, my experience of your work um is yeah this idea of you being a bridge or being a connector between different communities and also like different modes of practice i think or different forms of practice in a sense um you know you're very good at uh bringing bringing people together and you know uh creating a container for shared experience to 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 happen within mm. um thank you oh you're welcome mm. um <laughs> so how did you i'm curious I'm, I'm i know we've spoken about this before but i'm curious about how you ended up sort of doing the phd that you did um and you know, how you landed, because, you know, give, to, to give credit where credit's due, you are one of the leading scholars of, you know, contemporary yoga in the UK, if not, you know, worldwide. Um, <laughs> you know, you, you occupy a really, you know, you occupy a really special place. So I'm curious about how you, yeah, how you came into that, into that world of like bridging academia, bridging sort of grassroots yoga communities, etc. Yeah, I think, I think one of the things that interest, that's interesting about that is 
I guess, my own journey into and through higher education. Um, because I think possibly like a lot of people, I kind of almost, I almost landed um, at university um, as an undergraduate, really not having a clue what was going on and what my place in it was. Um, and that was kind of uh, exacerbated by the fact that I got, a, as an undergraduate, I got a place at Cambridge um, as a kind of state school uh, kid. So, I mean, I went from, you know, a tertiary college in the northwest of the UK where, like, you know, some of my friends were doing hairdressing courses and, and things like that to... Um, Cambridge, like, and it, and like, and it, you know, it nearly gave me a nervous breakdown. It was insane. It was completely insane. Um, and I, I remember about a, and and I know it might sound like, well, how can you do that by accident? But it happens a lot, I think, with with state school kids because what happens is someone says you should apply to Oxbridge, and you go, yeah, okay, that sounds fun. Um, and they tell you it'll look good on your UCAS form, and then you do your UCAS form, and then they go you come for an interview and you go, that'll be insane. And you go for an interview and you come out thinking that was the weirdest experience of my life. Um, like I will never forget my interview, like in this Cambridge college being asked in Spanish, no doubt in Spanish, which I'd been studying at that point for like three years or something. I'm being asked what I thought the phrase, the implacable eye of the camera meant. <laughs> I was like 17 years old at the time. Okay. I don't know even know what I said in Spanish back to them, but I remember it being one of the most terrifying moments of my life. And, you know, there were various interviews and it was all very weird. And then I kind of went home and went, well, that's that done. You know, that was my kind of Cambridge story. Uh, and then they said, well, you know, you can come, but only if you get two A's and a B. And I went, well, that's never going to happen. And then I got three A's. And then all of a sudden, it was like 18 years old heading to Cambridge. And I remember like, trying to explain to the adults around me that I, I didn't know whether I wanted to go. Um, I didn't know what it would mean. I, like, it was just generally terrifying. But you don't turn down a place like that. So you just go. Um and I kind of became estranged from my family during the course of my degree and, you know, generally like got to the end of it and it was just like, well, that nearly broke me, but I survived it. And now what the hell do I do? And kind of, um, you know, I didn't have family support. I didn't really have guidance. I had literally, it was just me, my girlfriend, and that was about it. Um, so I got a job in Waterstones in the middle of Cambridge and started selling books, you know, children's books at that, because I, I really understand children's books. I, I did that for a bit. And then I kind of, you know, went to France and just because... I my you know most of my degree was in French. I went to France and then came home from France with a different girlfriend and kind of decided I was going to be a tattooist for a bit. And there was this amazing moment having tea with my like like literally I was met my dad for a cuppa and he was saying <laughs> and he said I thought you were coming back to the UK to get a proper job <laughs> and I was like. <laughs> What do you mean tattooing isn't a proper job? I, Little so did was he just, know. <laughs> it was no idea. It was just the whole thing. It's like, yeah, I mean, it just makes no sense. And there's there's a the high strain of impulsivity in my life, which um, um, now I, I, I believe on evidence might be just a tiny wee bit related to undiagnosed ADHD. I, just, did you know there's an impulsive form of ADHD? When I found that out, it explained most of my life. Um, and then I did my master's because I was doing a job that was related to the master's. So 
and there I am in kind of my late 30s, just kind of getting on with my life. And I was a yoga teacher and I was doing, you know, I'd, I'd kind of fallen into that and I was doing that thing. And I was sitting with a friend, a festival, um, a good friend of mine. And we were, you know, we just used to spend the evenings kind of talking the world to rights. And we were talking the world to rights. And I was like waving my arm around this festival going, why is nobody talking about this? Why, why is nobody aware that this stuff goes on? There's this huge subculture of events and festivals and kind of the, you know subculture in particular that, that that goes on here in the UK, particularly in the summer, and and why is it completely absent from people's from kind of most people's understanding? And in the end, he said, "Look, Theo, one way or another, you either have to write a book about this or you have to do a PhD because this is insane." And then he uttered an immortal line, which is like a, it's like an academic chat-up line, which he's very good at. Um, and he said, Theo. I'm not saying that you'll regret not doing a PhD. I'm saying that academia will regret it if you don't. I just was like, that is the literal definition of academic pickup line. And I went, oh, well, now I have to do it. So, um, and yeah, for a, for a while it was going to be, you know, was I going to focus more on the festival scene or was I going to focus more on the activities that were happening at this festival scene? Um, particularly the kind of, not just the yoga, but the yoga and the dance and the kind of, you know, Five rhythm sessions and contact improv sessions and you know all of these forms of practice and all of these forms of coming together and forming relationship so so that's how I ended up doing a PhD um which I'm you know I had no idea what that would really entail uh, or what that would look like I'm uh and it was yeah it was just this massive learning curve from day one um, and learning curve number one was, I, yeah, I was technically in the religious studies department. I'm, you know, I still am, you know, technically my discipline is religious studies. I'd never done religious studies before. I had no idea what that was. I spent the first three months essentially reading the, the MA material, <laughs> kind of getting a sense of what this was as a subject. Um, yeah, so I'm... Um, yeah, there's a kind of an ongoing thread of a real tendency to just kind of find myself in places because they were important and I thought they were important. And the problem when you is, is when you start to say, why is nobody doing this loudly? That's kind of your way of volunteering, right? Yeah. No, I really, so. I really hear that. I want to talk about this idea of like a yoga scholar being in a religious studies department mm. because I think <laughs> a lot of people will experience like a bristling or a resistance or some sort of mm. cognitive dissonance around mm -hmm. yoga being thought of within that environment, particularly if you're sort of what I'm going to lovingly call like a lay practitioner. If you're not a teacher, if you're sort yeah. of, you know, somebody going along to a yoga studio on a regular basis, like it's a practice, it enriches your life mm -hmm. in some way, but you may not necessarily think of it as being in the same sphere as religious studies. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And I, that, that's, a, that's a fantastic place to kind of, to start talking about this stuff because I'm, you know, one of the things I'm doing at the moment is uh, I'm teaching on some introductory introduction to religious studies courses. I'm undergraduate level. And it's a big problem because a lot of students think they know what religion is. Um, and what we're saying to them is actually, as an academic discipline, what we study would surprise you. You know, I have friends who've, whose PhDs, um, investigate everything from BDSM to, you know, Scientology, to yoga, to uh, heavy metal music, to all sorts of different things. 
And we're not saying that any of those things are a religion. In fact, there's a huge amount of debate within religious studies as to whether a religion actually exists. Like we have this idea that there's such a thing as Christianity or Buddhism or Hinduism, but the reality is these are labels, and they're labels often that are externally produced or are political. There's political reasons for having them, and that's not that's not to say that a Buddhist can't say they're a Buddhist or whatever. Like, you, like labels are really important for as long as they have meaning to you as an individual. But it's precisely that. It's how do you make meaning in the world? How do you navigate the world? How do you wrestle with the big questions? And if therefore you can start to think not about a religion with a label on it and more about what are the activities that are religious in that they help create meaning in our lives. Um, and even people who would say, I have no religion and I'm not religious at all. One of my questions to them then is, well, you know, if you're Nandai's, do you put her out for the bin men? Because if you do something to mark that event, if you do something to memorialize, if you if you have rituals, if you have meaning, then you have a form not of religion, but of what Mallory Nye calls religioning, which is really interesting. So Mallory Nye is a theorist who says that religion is a verb. It's not necessarily an identity. So we've politicized all of these identities. And a lot of those identities were politicized during the spread of colonialism in particular. Um, the idea that there was such a thing as Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, so on and so forth, in many ways is the product of an academic environment that was trying to label subjugated peoples and say, well, this is what these people believe and this is what these people do and these people eat fish on a Friday and those people do this and those people invent that. And we're going to give all those labels, often from the outside, right? So it's not necessarily self-chosen labels. When you talk about Hinduism, for example, you know, these days, you know, Hindus would say they were Hindu. But if you talk to practitioners, they talk about dharma, they talk about practice, they talk about these are the things that we do, not I do this because I'm a Hindu. Do you see what I mean? Like these are the these are the paths. These are the ways that I walk through the world. This is what was important to my grandmother. This is what was important to my ancestors. This is the land that feels sacred when we walk on it. These are the ways we mark the turning of the year or the people passing or so on. Um, and so it's so much more than just here is my label and therefore this is what I believe. Um, so religious studies really attempts to kind of talk about all of those things. And that very same friend that got me into this mess in the first place, his name is Graham Harvey. I always like to name check him. Um, and his he has the most brilliant book on religious studies that's called Food, Sex and Strangers. Um, because oh, clever. That's his argument, that it's all about food, sex and strangers, basically. Um, so, you know, who do you eat? Who do you not eat? <laughs> who do you have sex with? Who do you not have sex with? Who do you consider to be part of your family? Who do you consider to be close to you? Who do you consider to be strangers? And religion is kind of all of those cultural practices which navigate that or help us to navigate that, um, which well, I really like. I mean, if we're looking at it through that lens, then the way that contemporary sort of transnational yoga operates definitely functions in a totally religious capacity doesn't it mm. yeah because it absolutely is about how we make meaning because how we make meaning through practice um and although we might not have a single set of beliefs 
I'm, it is, you know, part of the practice is about figuring what the answers are for you as an individual and um, what's ethical behavior, what, you know, how do we, how do we um, relate to different kinds of ethics in, in, in yoga? How do we, you know, how, what do we believe about the way the universe works? Um, you know, all of these things are things that that yoga practitioners debate all the time. Any time I think that anybody says it's not just about the poses, firstly, I would argue that the poses are still important, but also that all of those other things, um, if they're part of the picture, then they're part of us figuring out how the world works and how we fit within it. Um, there's another one of my favorite theorists, Robert Orsi, who says that these are the the signs and symbols that everyday people pick up to make sense of their world. Mm. And I love that because that's my practice. Yeah, I really love that. And it just makes it, it makes it all seem so like so much more accessible and personal and universal all at the same time. I think often what happens for people is that religion and theism are often conflated. Like this idea of a religion needing to have a a god or gods associated with it. And it's like if somebody's, well, I don't believe in that, then they view themselves as not having this um, religious aspect to their lives. I think it's really interesting actually when – so on – on dating apps when pe- like people can self-identify their religions, right? Um, which is just fascinating to me when somebody puts spiritual because... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what does that mean? What does that mean? Yeah, Like that could mean... That's like saying... Um, that's like saying human. Like, like <laughs> everybody, everybody has like a has the capacity or has a spiritual component, even if their spirituality revolves around their football team or, Mm. you know, Mm. like their family or, yeah, it's, you know. It's also, there's also this really interesting unexamined hierarchy about what's important in life. Um, I I think if you look at even the what we would consider to be the most traditional or mainstream of religions, um, in many ways, that kind of stuff that we might agonize around being really the heart of religion now, you know, like, what do you believe? You know, what's important? You know, how do, who do you believe in? Do you talk to God and so on? That's kind of in many places and for, for much of history seen as something that, is, that the religious specialists take care of. Like that is the priest's job. It's the priest's job to do all the talking to God bit. You just turn up every Sunday and, you know, you know, do the things that he tells you to do. And I find that fascinating. It's a different way of seeing these kinds of things. You know, there's stories, of, as as many people know about, you know, the Catholic Church went from Latin Mass to English Mass. A lot of, you know, there were Catholics who were like, well, I'm not interested anymore. I didn't want to understand it. Like, I didn't want to have theological debate. That's that's that, There are specialists to do that stuff, you know? It's like uh, that sense of kind of like, it's kind of your job to do that. And I wonder how... That is also true of a lot of yoga teachers, like the yoga practitioners. I was like, are yoga teachers, are we the priests? It's our job, right? Yeah, yeah. It's our job to do that stuff so that our students don't have to worry about whether they have to be vegan or not or, you know, or learn any Sanskrit. They're like, oh, no, it's just, you know, I just I go on a Wednesday morning and, and, and I have a nice time and. And it's lovely, like, you know, they want other people, they want religious people to exist. That doesn't mean to say they want to be the, the professionals themselves. 
So I think that's also an, an attitude, I think, that's really implicit in a lot of people that we don't talk about or we don't recognize. Just because you want somebody to be religious doesn't mean to say you need to be the person doing the thing. Mm. I'm a really big believer of that just in life in general. Like you don't need mm. to do all the things. Yes. And yeah. I know that's like a that's a very like obvious obvious thing to say but I feel like we can often feel a lot of pressure to like do everything like for example like I used to I just I used to have so many hobbies and it's not that I don't love a hobby but I had so many hobbies at a point where I was really unsatisfied with my work and I think also, you know, circumstances in my personal life. And then as those things sort of resolve themselves, I sort of kept up these hobbies for a while. And then I was just exhausted from doing everything. And I realized that I didn't have to do all of the things, you know, and that I was quite happy. Yeah. Like letting, letting some of that go. Or like, it's like when people tell me, actually, this is one I get quite often is because I love anatomy and I love bodies. I'm often told that I should train to be an osteopath or a physio or something. And I'm just like, nope, no, <laughs> no, don't, I don't have to do all nope, the things. <laughs> don't want to like think it's really interesting, but I've got my way into it and my way of working with it. And I don't I don't I also don't need to professionalize it beyond the way that I already have. Yes, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's interesting how much that kind of sort of happens within yoga studies as well, because, you know, the other discipline obviously I'm involved in is yoga studies, which is and what was known as an area studies. It's a particular kind of discipline. And sometimes there is that sense that maybe you should be into all of the things. <laughs> I always have this slight sense like I should know Sanskrit better than I know Sanskrit because or I should be a pre-modern specialist or so on and so forth and one of the things I think that academia does teach you is that if you want a real advancement of knowledge then people have to specialize you have to be able to rely on colleagues and you have to be able to say okay well this is what I understand about the science from this person like if I'm if I want to know about the biomechanics of how bodies move I'm going to talk to Pete Blackaby I'm going to talk to Jules Mitchell like I can figure out some of that stuff on my own and I'm going to learn from them but if they tell me this is what we figured out actually I trust them I do trust them to have an answer that works for me and in the same way as a Sanskritist says oh yes you know in the last 20 years we've figured out that the meaning of this word is this in some ancient text I'm going to be like cool awesome <laughs> I found that out so I think part of the like one of the issues we have um, with social media and modern life in general is this sense of like everyone has to do their own research like you know, trust me, I do a tiny amount of research in the grand scheme of things. And I like I would not I don't have the hubris to believe that I could do research in psychology or in biology or in physics. Like I know how difficult research is in my small area. I know how to do field work. I know how to do interviewing. I know how to do, you know, kind of discourse analysis, those kinds of things. I know how to do movement analysis. And I know how much training and self-reflection it took to do that in any way well. And I know that I spend half my time grumbling at other researchers for not doing it well. <laughs> so like, the idea that you can just as an example, understand 
virology. My watching <laughs> some things on the internet. Whatever I don't could care you how many web pages. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't care how much shit you've watched or read. Like, no. <laughs> no. You can't. Not everyone can do their own research, right? Um, and that's not the same thing as, oh, you should always believe people. But it is one of the things I think we've lost is the idea of a, of a trusted circle of experts. And I know this is something that you and I have talked about before, that it is actually really important to know who you can trust. Um, not to be cleverer than you, but to be more of a specialist than you in a particular area. Like, like, like if I'm, if I'm going to take my car to a mechanic with clutch failure, I'm not going to go, I've looked on the internet and I think you'll find. <laughs> well, it's, it's all about, this one. <laughs> it's all about recruiting. It's all about recruiting a team, isn't it? Somebody once said mm. to me, cause I am very much of the attitude where if somebody can do something better than me, I'm going to pay them to do that. So, you know, I have a great hairdresser. I have an amazing accountant. I have somebody that takes photos for me. I have wonderful Matt here who is producing the podcast. Sure. Yeah. You know, like I, I recruit a team to, to help me and we all help each other. And like that's, you know, that's how we get things done. Well, Theo, I'm very, very glad that you're, you're on my team. Yes, and vice versa. <laughs> no. um, but we have dramatically run out of time have we all of a sudden we wow. did we did spend 10 minutes talking about mustard so we did that was the gentle introduction to the hardcore academia yeah and we've come full circle again um uh so just to finish off where can where can our listeners find you where can they get in touch with you we're gonna get in touch that's actually um there's a complicated answer to that but there's a really simple one and i like the simple one and the simple answer is as far as i am aware there is only one theo wildcroft in the world <laughs> so generally speaking if you want to find me you can google me i'm and i am on instagram and um you know all the usual platforms but i'm also in the process of redoing my website so although my website at the moment is wildyoga.co.uk there's there's a new one waiting in the wings that's in our heads but hasn't been made yet that i have my team working on at the moment so the short answer is i find theo wildcraft i'm out there <laughs> wonderful well, I could have spoken to you for hours, as I often do on a regular basis. As usual. As usual. <laughs> um, but thank you so much for joining me and um, I'll see you soon. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to In Our Experience. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review the podcast. We love hearing what you think and it makes a really big difference. In the meantime, until the next episode comes out, why not check us out on our Instagram account at Nourish Yoga Training or pop us an email via our website. See you soon. <laughs>